Hey there, this is Vic Mignogna, Captain James T. Kirk from Star Trek Continues, and you're listening to the biggest little show this side of the Alpha Quadrant. It's the Trek Geeks Podcast with Dan Davidson and Bill Smith. This is the biggest little show this side of the Alpha Quadrant and your independent Star Trek podcast. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Trek Geeks. This is episode number 112. I'm your co-host, Bill Smith, and thank you so much for downloading. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for just enjoying what we do. By we, I have a co-host, much to my chagrin and dismay. There are days where I wish I didn't. And if you listen to this week's outtake, you'll probably understand why. He apparently is an alien because he's far better at golf than I am. He's uh, Dan Davidson. Hey, what's uh, up? I'm not a very good golfer these days, I gotta say. You probably would be. Well, it must be the drinking. Well, <laughs> it's always good to be here, man. <laughs> Great introduction. I appreciate that. I was going to compliment you on your golf game, but never mind. Uh, ep- <laughs> <laughs> we know you would have been lying, man. <laughs> You're good with your pitching wedge, and that's what matters. That's what matters? Wow. wow. So what, yeah. English, are you familiar with it? English is hard. <laughs> English is hard. Um, so, uh, buddy, you've you've had a you've had quite the week, and and we're here tonight. We're going to talk about some spoilers. Yes. Something we've been dying to just talk about on the podcast. Yeah, for a while. It's not it's not often that we wait this long to talk about spoilers for this particular topic. But uh, Star Trek Continues Episode Nine came out right before we went to Vegas and Vegas kind of took our attention away for a little while and then of course we had to do the recap last week so we finally get to talk about episode 9 what ships are for spoilers aplenty hashtag spoilers abound I'm getting the sense that there could be spoilers ahead is that correct Dan Davidson not only that but I'm going to give you a spoiler about this podcast huh do do tell you ready I am Vic Mignogna's coming on again. No way! That's right! <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Later in the show, we're going to talk to the captain himself, Vic Mignogna from Star Trek Continues. He's the creator. He's the executive producer. He directed this episode. And um, it's always a great time when Vic shows up. This will be his record sixth appearance on Trek Geeks, Dan. That's just behind you and me. I, I know. Nobody's even close to six. It's awesome. It's always great to talk to Vic. We love having him on. He never disappoints with all of the insight and discussion about the episodes, and I have a feeling that tonight will not be any different. I have to agree with you 100%. Um, he is always a treat when he comes on the show. Gives us some great insight into the Star Trek Continues episode, and tonight will be no exception. Dan, also not an exception. Usually at this juncture, you provide the contact information so people can tell us what they think, their ideas, their reactions to the podcast, and we might want to deliver that to them now, my friend. 
I think we can do that. We always love hearing from all of our listeners. So please, on Twitter, Facebook, Skype, and Instagram, you can find us at Trek Geeks. And you can also send us an email at podcast at trekgeeks.com. If you want to give us a call and leave us a voicemail, you can certainly do that by dialing 508-784-1701. Or you can also go to SpeakBite speakpipe.com slash trekgeeks. I was going to throw a little story in with that, but I screwed it up, so forget it. I'm just moving right on along. Uh, Plus, you can also join our official Facebook group, Camp Kittimer. Always good discussion going. We're still talking about Trek over in Camp Kittimer, which is always good, as well as the eclipse that people saw today. Just head on over to facebook.com slash groups slash Camp Kittimer and any of our wonderful admins, Heather, Jackie, or Dan, or even possibly Bill or myself, We'll let you right into the group to partake in all the fun and frivolity. But it is very important that you remember that any comments or messages you leave us in any of these places may be used in a future episode. Bill, back to you. Wow, that was like the Federal Express commercial guy in the 80s. That's what I was hoping you would say. That was really Thank great. You. Thank you, know, you uh, very much. But before we move on, I want to talk about an instant poll that I did in Camp Kittimer just this very day. Yes. And the results, I think, are fascinating. So there was a debate going on about Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. And at some point, it became a discussion between Star Trek The Motion Picture and, and Star Trek V. So I put out a poll and said, which would you rather watch? And assume you have to pick one of these two films. So you can't pick another film. You can't say, I want to watch both. You really have to pick one. And um, I was stunned, Dan, at the love for Star Trek The Motion Picture. Um, really? Oh, my God. So 88 people, and this is just, you know, within a few hours, 88 people said they would rather watch Star Trek The Motion Picture, and 43 people said they would rather watch Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. So it's, um, it's, it's almost two to one. I have to say, personally, I'm not surprised. I love Star Trek The Motion Picture. I always have. I love the music. I love the fact that it's the first movie. Yeah, it's a little slow in places, but I'll always take Motion Picture over Star Trek V. Well, you know, the thing is, people call it Star Trek The Motion Less Picture, you know, when they want to beat <laughs> on it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and so I, was, I can hear, I was really I hear that. Su- I was really kind of surprised. I've, I've grown to love TMP. I used to beat on it before, like maybe 10, 15 years ago. But, you know, at its core, it is pure, unadulterated Star Trek. And it's so heartwarming to see the love for that movie. Now, I mean, it's uh, it's not a surprise. I don't like Star Trek V. I think the you know, people talk about the camping scenes, and I think they are just so, you know, bonk bonk on the head. Campy, you know, be yeah. Well, not just campy, but cheesy. Yes. You know, I just uh, it's painful at times to watch. Or if you watch the the Sulu and Chekhov trapped, in, you know, on their hike. You know, and, you know, and Chekhov's trying to pretend like there's a blizzard going on by blowing into the communicator. It's just, it's painful. Painful. It's kind of like podcasting with you. Wow. Okay. So that was like three minutes of setup just for that joke. I, I could tell that you just were itching to, to get right in there. So, so basically, Star Trek, the motion picture is Bill, and Star Trek V, the motion picture is Dan, and it's an 88 to 39 vote. Is that what you're saying? Um, I'll allow it. <laughs> Oh, 
Oh, Dan, it's time for the news from treknews.net. Oh, Bill. Spanning the alpha quadrants. For all the news on all the Star Treks, it's treknews.net. Online at treknews.net. And Dan, up first, um, for all those pin collectors out there, we have yet another amazing update from the exclusive sponsors of our upcoming Discovering Trek podcast, don't we? Exclusive sponsors indeed, yes. More great news coming from our friends over at Fansets. Uh, Do yourself a favor, folks. Head right on over to thinkgeek.com for an exclusive. For $29.99, you can now get a Discovery pin with the USS Shenzhou and a special CBS All Access logo. Uh, you know, but you might say, wow, that's kind of expensive for a pin, isn't it? But no, not really, because in addition to that pin, you're going to get a digital code for $25 worth of credit towards your CBS All Access subscription. Now, if you're doing the six month, or excuse me, the $6 subscription to CBS All Access, that's one, two, three, four, that's over four months of of free content. Not just Discovery, but all of the CBS stuff, including all of the Star Treks. So, uh, yeah, head right over there. That's, uh, that's pretty awesome. But supplies are limited, so you want to take care of uh, placing that order very quickly, Mr. Smith. Absolutely. It's a beautiful pin. It's a variant on their USS Shenzhou pin that, uh, that I think really looks fantastic. And, uh, you know, if you're going to get a $25 credit to CBS All Access, it's, it's worth it alone because the pin itself should go for about 15 to 20 bucks. Yeah. So, yeah, thinkgeek.com, it's, it's there now. I'm looking at their website right now. And you can get this pin of the NCC1227 and, uh, and offset some of your CBS All Access costs. You could almost see the whole show or half, more than half the show for free. It's pretty amazing. I, I placed my order several days ago, and according to the tracking in my email, it was supposed to be delivered this here very day. But since it didn't come in the mail, I checked, and oh yeah, now it's not coming till Thursday. So I'm very disappointed. Oh, well, we'll take that up with ThinkGeek. But for now, Dan, speaking of discovery, we have some more news about the forthcoming CBS All Access series, which is now just over one month away from release. Cannot get here fast enough. Um, people, really we have been talking about it, and if you've been watching those awesome promotions uh, for Discovery, uh, someone online with a very keen eye pointed out that the releases of these promos have been at either 1227 or 1031 during the day. Now, the registry of the USS Shenzhou is, Bill... Well, we just talked about it. It is 1227. There you go. And the USS Discovery, I'm guessing, is probably 1031. Yes. So that's kind of cool. Another brilliant marketing move by the folks over at uh, CBS and the people putting together Discovery. I think that's just just that little thing is it just speaks volumes to me. Well, it's a nice touch, and all those character promos, albeit short, have been great to see because they're focusing on a whole lot of people instead of you know just Sinequa or just Jason Isaacs or you know just uh, Takuvma, the Klingon. Right. So uh, it's great to see. It's getting me even more amped up for September twenty fourth, if that's even remotely possible. Yeah, it's 
I have to say, every time something new comes out, I get more amped up. And now you can go to StarTrek.com and see all of those promos all one after another. So you get to see all those cast members. They're only a few seconds long, but they they tell you a lot. And I'm, I, I love them. Me too. And Dana, looks like Alex Kurtzman had some interesting comments about the second season of Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, this was very surprising. Of course, the first season hasn't already hasn't even started yet. Um, but he said that uh, season two, he doesn't necessarily want to bring the Klingon War into season two of DSC. So that's kind of cool. Um, but he does also go on to say, "quote The results of the war are going to allow for a lot of new storytelling." That will be the result of everything that happens and the people that are left behind, the casualties, the things that have grown in Starfleet as a result of the war. Uh, so that is what we will inherit in the second season, end quote. So they've already got stuff in motion for what's going to happen after this premiere season that's kicking off in just a few weeks. You know, it occurred to me a long time ago that highly serialized would mean that you know, the effects of this season would have far-reaching impacts downstream, and Kurtzman is just confirming that now. It, right. I'm glad that season two won't necessarily be about the Klingon War, but I'm glad that there's going to be fallout. I think it's necessary, especially in today's storytelling, you know, methods. I agree. Well, excellent. Uh, Dan, um, moving on, the latest trailer hit uh, this past week and we noticed that it had an interesting rating. And I was looking for your thoughts on this. I am, I, I gotta be honest. Well, first of all, we'll tell people that the show has a TVMA rating for mature audiences. Now, of course, this is the first time we've ever seen anything like this with Trek. And of course, being on CBS All Access, they're gonna have a lot more flexibility in what they show us. I, for one, I said it several months ago, I think, on one of the podcasts, I think it's great. Real life has violence. Real life has language. Real life has sex. Real life has this and that. Why not bring that into a show? They're not going to overdo it. I can guarantee you that. And I'm not even in the writer's room. But for it to be more realistic, even in a science fiction story, I think is good. I don't have any problem with it whatsoever. None. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, well, as far as we know, just the trailer had the rating. Theoretically, a show being streamed on, on the internet doesn't need a rating because it's not on television. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's uh, I imagine it's going to be mostly for violence or, you know, sci-fi action violence. Sure. Because, I mean, you can get a TVMA rating, you know, for language or sexuality or violence or whatever. So it could be some combination of the three, but I think it's mostly going to be for sci-fi action violence, quite honestly. Yeah, and I, still, I'm okay yeah. with it because it's the Klingons. True. And I tend to agree with you. And I think one of the things that'll be interesting is, I believe on shows like Game of Thrones right now, what it at the beginning of the show, it's going to give you the rating. And then for that specific episode, it's going to tell you exactly why it's rated that. So we, we will be able to see before the episode airs, if they do it the same way, exactly what might be a little bit too mature for younger audiences during that episode, which I think would be a good thing as well. And plus, these are things we'll be talking about on Discovering Trek, a Star Trek Discovery companion, premiering September 25th, the night after Episode 1 on CBS. Can't wait for that either, buddy. What's this? A new show? Yeah, maybe you've heard of it. Huh. Um, it's a, it, it's a, a couple of yahoos are doing it. It's called <laughs> Discovering Trek. It sounds kind of neat. All right. I, I think I'll check it out. <laughs> Dan, moving on to other shows... 
it looks like there was some talk at STLV about what a season five for Star Trek Enterprise could have looked like. Yeah, this is so sad to read, actually, in my opinion, because season four just really picked up Enterprise, and it was too bad that it ended prematurely. Uh, yeah, in a recent interview at STLV, Andre Bor- Bormanis uh discussed the fact that season five would have shown how the relationship between humans and Vulcans changed to be more in line with what we saw in the original series. You know, we always saw the the kind of tension between the Vulcans and the humans during Enterprise, but that certainly doesn't take place in TOS. So that would have been really interesting to see what happened. And additionally, Brandon Braga hinted that season five would have delved into that Romulan war that we always had heard so much about, which also was with the creation of the neutral zone. So a couple things that we unfortunately didn't get to see, but it's nice to uh, hear that they had a plan anyway, maybe. It is. You know, it's when you couple that information with the revelation that you know at some point we were going to find out that Archer was future guy. Um, it, it it says that they they really had a plan for Enterprise, and it actually was really good. You know, I um, it's a shame it was cut short. You know, in its prime, honestly, I think it it was at its at its best storytelling at that point. It took a little bit to get there, but um, you know what might have been. You know, exactly. It's really a shame. Dan, it looks like uh, there's a new power couple in Star Trek. Uh, Terry Farrell and Adam Nimoy made a very big announcement this past weekend. Yeah, this was great news. Of course, uh, folks may or may not know that Adam and Terry had been dating for quite a while. Um, I actually didn't bring it up last week during our STLV recap um, that my favorite moment of of the entire convention was getting to meet some of the cast, including Adam and Terry. And we'll get more into that in a couple of weeks when we have a special episode um, to discuss some things. But Terry and Adam got engaged over the weekend, and I could not be more happy for the both of them. They look like such a great couple. It was so great to meet and talk to them a couple of weeks ago. And I, for one, wish them the happiest of years together. They are a super couple, and I'm just tickled pink. Yeah, they both look so happy, and, and this is great. Um, I, I think it's wonderful for both of them, and we wish them all the best. And um, you know, here, here's here's two many great happy years together for sure. Um, well, Dan, I, I I had something else to do this past week, and I was kind of on another podcast. I hear. Yeah, you're. You know, the the famous ones always getting on the podcast lately. That's kind of cool, man. Congratulations. Yes, our very own Bill Smith was a guest on Trek FM's The Edge to talk about the evolution of television, which is very, very cool. Of course, Trek FM's dedicated Star Trek Discovery podcast is The Edge. And uh, it was great to see, uh, or hear, I should say, Bill as a guest over there. And uh, you weren't just talking by yourself, were you, buddy? You had some other people there with you. No, I wasn't. We had our good friend Brandon Shamutella, you know, B-Shay, as we like to call him. He was with us on our Generations episode. He was uh, hosting that particular installment of The Edge and joining us uh, were also Mike Schindler, his co-host, and, and Bruce Gibson. All of them have podcasts on the network. And uh, it, was, it was a really interesting and fascinating discussion on how TV has evolved and how Star Trek has kind of always been in the middle of it, or at times at the forefront. So... Um, if you haven't checked it out yet, you can always head over to trekfm.com uh, and, and find the podcast there or wherever podcasts can be obtained. Um, 
It was my first appearance on Trek FM, actually. So, uh, Dan, you actually uh, beat me in that particular department, but I look forward to being on the network with them at some other time. It was, uh, I had a lot of fun. That's good to hear. They are a great group of people over there, and uh, I'm really glad you had the opportunity, man. I, uh, I, for one, might even listen to it now that I know that you're on there. No, I won't listen to it just because you're on there. You don't even listen to this podcast. Why would you listen to that one? (laughs) Well, my friend, Star Trek Continues has yet another episode out, their ninth installment, hard to believe. And um, before we go any further, we want to warn people, if you have not seen the ninth episode of Star Trek Continues, titled What Ships Are For, please stop now. Don't listen to this episode of Trek Geeks any further. Go watch What Ships Are For. It's on YouTube. It's on Vimeo. You can find it just about everywhere. It's free. You can, you know, watch it as many times as you want. Pay zero to do it. And then come back and listen to our discussion here, starting right now. Dan... Give me your, you know, your initial thoughts about, about the episode before we uh, have you do our patented and infamous three-minute recap. I thought that this episode was the one so far that really gave us a Star Trek story. They took something currently happening in today's world, and they turned it into a Star Trek story, and they did it masterfully. I, I think that was so well and succinctly put that I really can't add to it. They really did tie modern events. I mean, like truly, you know, current events into one of their episodes and do it in a way that it just, it is, you know, great Star Trek. So, you know, obviously we've got some high profile guest stars in this episode. You know, there's Anne Lockhart, who of course was on Battlestar Galactica. Uh, John Delancey, he who will forever be Q. Um, and we're going to talk a lot about John later, but it was so great to see him in Star Trek Continues because we know what kind of quality Continues is. Right. And then you had somebody like John, and it just kicks it up uh, at least a dozen more notches. Yeah. I, I I find it interesting that even though that it's winding down, which of course we'll talk about also uh, with Vic and probably later on, they are still just knocking it out of the park every single time you would think that at some point there has to be some kind of a little bit of a a reset or a little bit of a step down that just does not happen with star trek continues and i couldn't be more happy for them and more proud to be friends with them and associated with them seeing that this work that they put out it is it's just it is perfect star trek period wow okay well no pressure there um, at this point, we should probably have you do your patented and trademarked and infamous three-minute recap. But um, just before we do that, we want to remind people again, Dan is about to tell you everything that happens in this episode. Seriously, he's not going to leave a thing out. If you listen to this next three minutes, you will know exactly what happens in What Ships Are For. So again, if you haven't watched the episode and you want to watch the episode, please stop now. Because Dan is starting in three, two, one. The Enterprise is en route to the asteroid Hyalinus to assist with a crisis that is categorized as something of, quote, global proportions. 
The Hyalini have always been a xenophobic race, and they've refused outside assistance for centuries. So Kirk's been ordered to proceed with the utmost diplomacy and the utmost caution. After receiving a text message, yes, a text message, that the transporter window was open, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam to the surface of the planet or the asteroid to discover that everything is in black and white. After beaming down, the landing party is greeted by Galisti and Theus, and after exchanging pleasantries and confusion for Spock's different appearance, Theus apologizes and says, quote, how often we look but forget to see. Kirk asks if Hyalinus has always looked like this, and Galissi appears confused, not realizing that they on the asteroid see things differently than the landing party under normal circumstances. Spock believes that there is a form of radiation interfering with the cones in humanoid eyes, rendering everything in black and white while on the asteroid. Arriving at Council Headquarters, the landing party meets Sakara, and, well, Kirk turns on the charm. After subduing a suicidal member of the council who disagrees with the present course of action, Kirk learns that Sakara unfortunately has a disease that will kill her within a year. The Hyalini are asking for help in curing this disease and also preventing starvation because crops have stopped growing. McCoy believes the disease is a result of the radiation bombarding the asteroid from the sun, and the crew offers to bring Sakara back to the Enterprise for treatment. Kirk believes that she will be shielded from the radiation and will also be able to see in color for the very first time in her life. Upon beaming onto the Enterprise, the purple-haired and olive-skinned Sakara at first doesn't see anything different, but slowly colors start to show up in her vision and she panics. Kirk reassures her that everything is fine and she is safe, and later in the briefing room, McCoy explains that over a millennia, the radiation has built up to a point that it's killing the inhabitants and destroying the soil to have sustainable crops. Spock believes that using a modified stellar probe, they can alter the radiation output of the sun and stop the harmful radiation from hitting the asteroid. He also advises the captain that tricorder readings show that all the inhabitants of the asteroid share the exact same pigmentation Yet Sakara does not share those traits. She's actually an alien to Hyalinus, as are approximately 30% of the entire population. But due to the black and white nature of how they see things, the Hyalini have no idea that they are not alone. Kirk orders a sweep of the asteroid belt to see if there are any other signs of life. Kirk is concerned that if the Hyalini discover they have aliens on their world, it would cause widespread chaos as they have always been so isolated. McKenna agrees, and they decide to use caution with Sakara to find out about her origins. Later in Kirk's quarters, Kirk discusses color with Sakara, and then he makes his move. He likes purple hair. On the bridge, Palmer discovers another asteroid with another culture, and at the same time, they start monitoring two shuttles heading directly towards Hyalinus. The unarmed shuttles have 12 occupants on board, and Security Chief Drake advises the Hyalinus defense platforms have activated and locked weapons on the shuttles. Well, luckily, the defense platform's aim is really not too great, and they miss the shuttle completely, or both shuttles. But the Enterprise doesn't miss. Their aim is much better, and they destroy the platform with one phaser burst. The shuttles alter course back towards their own asteroid as the Hyalini Council demands an explanation from Kirk as to why he destroyed their defense platform. 
Kirk confronts Sakara about the incident and learns that the Hyalini know about this other group of people called the Abishans. Hyalinis believe that the Abishans are savages who lie and cheat and are trying to invade their world because they've pillaged their own. Sakara tells Kirk that Abishans killed her parents when she was 10 and that she never has actually met an Abishan and that they have never been on the planet Hyalina. Kirk tells her she's wrong and actually explains that she is an Abishan and they all look alike unless they can see color, both Hyalini and Abishan. As Sakara tries to fight what he is saying, Kirk explains that she is the same person regardless of what species she is and that there's no reason to hate another simply because of the way they look. She has been told to believe certain things about the Abishans, but she is proof that all these beliefs are dead wrong. Kirk argues with Galisti about the way that they're treating the Abishans, and Galisti is set in his ways. He believes that the Abishans are a scourge that must not be allowed to set foot on his world. Kirk is disgusted by Galisti's blind way of thinking, as Galisti spits the idea of the Prime Director right back into Kirk's face. Back on the ship, Kirk reports that the Hyalini are overjoyed at the success of the treatments and are looking forward to the cure. You know, but he has his reservations based on the way Galisti and the Council view the Abishans. He's gravely concerned about how the Hyalini will treat the Abishans once they are revealed in full and living color. McKenna suggests that Kirk's frustration might be more of a personal nature. He has strong feelings for Sakara. In engineering, Scotty is preparing a Mark II probe when Sakara and Chekhov come in as part of a tour of the ship. When she has the chance, she grabs a plasma tool and wants to destroy the probe because Hyalina is not ready for what is about to happen. Scotty opens a channel to the bridge so Kirk can hear what's going on and he bolts for engineering. Once there, he talks Sakara down and talks her into giving him the tool and he explains that she would only be delaying the inevitable. She's terrified for what's going to happen to her world once everyone can see in color. Back on the asteroid, Callisti offers thanks for what the Federation is about to do for all of their people, but Kirk interrupts with one simple word. Some. Some of your people. He advises the Council that Abishans are on the planet right now, and Callisti thinks he's tricking him so he won't have to launch the probe. Kirk talks about how keeping the status quo on Hyalina will never allow when they are worthy to join the community of the stars. But they've never reached out beyond their beliefs. Quote, a ship in the harbor is safe. But that's not what ships are for, Kirk says. And he asks if they really are ready for their moment in history. Galisti shrugs him off, asking him once again to launch the probe. But Kirk surprises him by saying that was launched almost 20 minutes ago. The members of the council prepare for the change that is about to take over their world, and Theus makes a point to proclaim her undying love for Galisti and noting that nothing will ever change it. Galisti looks confused at this, but holds her in his arms as slowly they all begin to see color. He looks down and sees that Theus's hair is purple and her skin is olive. She's an Abishan, and he is repulsed at the sight of her. She falls to her knees sobbing as Galisti says that this changes nothing and demands that the decontamination of the asteroid continue. Smirking, Kirk advises that they will be unable to do so as the Enterprise has suddenly been ordered away on urgent business. In order to resolve the problem, Hyalinus will have to work with the Abishans 
because they have the decontamination technology they need and Hyalina has the medicine that the Abishans need to cure the radiation poisoning on their world as well, thanks to Dr. McCoy. As it turns out, Abisha has been suffering from the effects of the sun long before Hyalina, and that's why their world has turned chaotic. Both worlds are going to have to work together. Galisti pleads, quote, don't make us beg help from them, just as Sakara walks in, shocking him further. She embraces Theus, who tells Galisti, there is no more them anymore, my dear. And Sakara finishes with, there is only us. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know that time is kind of a nebulous thing. Some say time is the fire in which we burn, Dan. But you had me burning for about eight and a half minutes. I, I lost count at some point. Um, are you aware that that's more than three? You know what? For the quality that Star Trek Continues puts out, they're worth that extra time, my friend. And that's how I look at it. If I was so, doing a synopsis of something about you, I probably would have taken a minute and a half, maybe two minutes. But I felt that Star Trek Continues deserved that extra detail, and I'm one proud guy. <laughs> so it's, it's a three-minute recap. Not like three times three, because it was almost nine minutes. I got an idea. Everybody listening to the podcast, go to double speed, and that might help a little bit. <laughs> it's still going to be more than th- three minutes. It's going to be four and change. Work with me. <laughs> um, you get an F for meeting your time goals, but an A for your recap. Nicely done, man. Thanks, man. It's always great to do the recaps. I got to say, it is it is very difficult to try to, as high level as we want it, I just feel that there has to be some detail thrown in there. So it's difficult. I promise I will try better in episode 10, but I cannot guarantee anything. I will say that right now. You will fail spectacularly. I just want to put that out there right now. And I'll be happy Dan, to do so. <laughs> Dan, at the beginning of this episode, there is just, uh, there's a great scene that's really nice and light. And it, it's really kind of different to have a light kicker scene at the beginning of an episode rather than the end. It's got some beautiful moments, especially McKenna's little nudge of Spock, which I thought was just just really inspired. It really was. It's not something that you're used to seeing. He doesn't like to be touched. He's a Vulcan, but they have a great relationship. We've hinted in past episodes that they have this bond that they seem to be uh, sharing. And it was great to see. And, and, Spock didn't look all that annoyed by it either. He kind of was like, uh, 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 but nothing like the look that sometimes he might give if someone were to do something like that. Absolutely. I, I thought that it, it did a great job of solidifying, you know, McKenna as, you know, a staple in that crew now. She belongs there just as much as the others do. And even the bit where Bones was like, well, she, she, she's in my spot. <laughs> I thought that was really nice, too. It was a Sheldon-esque moment, and I, it did not disappoint. It, oh, it really was. That's a great point. Yeah. But uh, I, thought, I thought the best line of that, that teaser was, was probably Vic's, and I think you know the one I'm talking about. Oh, God. That, that might be one of the best. I'm going to actually bring that up with him. I, I have to. That is one of the best calls to the original series and the movies so far in everything they have done. Um, you're not... You're, <laughs> I could catch me in one of those uniforms. Of course, I'm paraphrasing, but gee, guess what, buddy? <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> it was brilliant. 
It, it really was. There, there are a lot of really great, subtle moments in this, you know, just at the character level. And here's a great example. Uh, uh, Kipley Brown's script is just is really fantastic. And there's a scene where, you know, Spock and Kirk and Bones are walking down the corridor. And Bones says, tomato, tomato. <laughs> you know, because Spock and, and, and Bones are arguing. Right. And Kirk says... Call it off, gentlemen. Yes. It is a great nod to the classic Gershwin song, Let's Call the Whole Thing Off. Because I sat there laughing at that because it was just worked in really well and just very sublime. The, the I don't know the best way to describe it. You can tell how everyone in that cast works well together and they feed off of each other's stuff. There are probably some things in there that are not in the script that they just decide to do when the camera's rolling and you'd never be able to tell. And you got to wonder if something like that was, was, was part of it. We've, we've had great conversations with Vic about things that he's thought of at the last minute. So he'll go and talk to the director before they start shooting. But I gotta, I've gotta believe that some of the stuff is ad-libbed and it just, it just works because they all work so well together. Without a doubt. Um, I think that one of the other things they do really well is incorporating other actors into these episodes. You know, I'm, we're going to talk to Vic about, you know, the, the lineage of guest stars they've had and how each one has really just sort of kicked it up a notch from the one before. And I don't know how they're going to outdo it in 10 and 11 because when you get John Delancey on screen, it's, it's pretty epic. Oh, without a doubt. Um, and if they're planning on wowing us further, I mean, we um, let's look at who we've had. Michael Forrest. Who's going to top Michael Forrest? Oh, my God, he's the original Apollo. Oh, let's bring in Lou Ferrigno. Are you serious? I mean, it just kept going and going and going. John Delancey, he's, he's at the top of the list, with especially with Star Trek people. So they're going to have their hands full with topping it, but I would not be surprised if they do somehow. Yeah, I... I can't wait to see what is in store. But coming back to what ships are for, I have to say that you know one of the main premises of the episode, the fact that this planet renders in black and white, I thought was just really fantastic and shocking to the eye because we're so used to the primary colors that are used all over the place in Star Trek and on purpose. Because, you know, at one point, Star Trek was owned by... I'm sorry, NBC was owned by RCA. Yes. And Star Trek was used to help sell color televisions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) RCA color televisions. So this episode is also a beautiful contrast just to Star Trek's history alone. It is. Uh, I I agree with you. The the black and white scenes really popped for, you know, less, you know, lesser term. I'd like to know, and and uh, I'll, I'll have to try to remember to bring this up. I'd like to know what the exterior view was from of that beautiful council building that they used. I'm it's probably somewhere in LA. I'm I'm guessing, but an observatory it looked like. But I'd love to find out where that was because that was a beautiful building, and in black and white, it even looked fantastic. It um it definitely made everything seem a lot more real. You know, it was obvious they were on a set, an outdoor set, indoors. But just that exterior shot of the building was great, and it, it looks like something we've seen before. Mm-hmm. You know right. what I mean? I, I do have one question that I'd like to ask you, and just to see if you caught it, because I'm, I'm a little confused. That does happen. Um, 
we talked about the scene just a few minutes ago with with Vic talking, or excuse me, with Kirk talking about how he would never be caught dead in one of those uniforms, and they were talking to Admiral McGinnis at Starfleet Medical. It looked so it was mm-hmm. a medical admiral. Does that is that normal? I know that McCoy was one later in an encounter at Farpoint, um, but I just thought that was a little interesting. I guess. Well, if we can have captains of engineering. Um, True. And, and captains who were science officers, uh, Scotty and Spock, I'm looking at you. Um, then I, sp- <laughs> I suppose an admiral uh, at Starfleet Medical doesn't seem outside the realm of possibility. Okay. And fantastic callback to Nurse Chapel as well. I thought that was very well done, too. Definitely. And, and setting up, you know, the Star Trek the motion picture, too, which everything in Star Trek continues does. I mean... Right. We have to love the fact that they are so um, so great at bridging the gap or trying to bridge the gap between the two productions. Um, I, I have to say that I think Anne Lockhart has the best line of that first scene on the planet. And it's, um, are you an Earth female? <laughs> <laughs> and Bones' reaction is just as great. <laughs> it It really is. You know, this, this script is peppered with such great dialogue. You know, um, even in that scene, I mean, there's a line that says, how often we look but forget to see. Yes. You know, just lots of real gems in this script. And I keep coming back to how great the script is. And Kipley Brown really deserves an incredible amount of credit for what she wrote. I, I, I can't praise it enough, honestly. Yeah, she. I mean, she's such a great person. We loved hanging out with her when we were down in Georgia. But uh, this screenplay was just, just, it's so spot on of what we as Trek fans are looking for in an episode. Um, I personally have not seen anything online yet, and it's been a few weeks now, that's negative about this episode. It seems to be a universal acceptance that this is just a great hour of Star Trek quote-unquote television and that's a testament to what she wrote and how everybody acted things out and we got to see lisa on the bridge of the enterprise controlling the ship how can you go (laughs) how can you not go wrong with that uh how can you not go uh, did i say that right i think i think no how can you go wrong with that i i it doesn't matter see she i was so happy that i don't even know what i'm saying that's you're delirious and i understand why uh, Dan, run down some of your other favorite parts of of the episode. You know, you can go high level, you can go specific, whatever you want to. Do. Well, uh, my my favorite my favorite part and the favorite scene was just the humor with the whole admiral uniform. I thought that that was just terrific. I actually blurted out laughing when I was watching that with my wife the first time we watched it. I actually I think my iPad went across the couch when I realized that Lisa was sitting on the bridge um, because you had texted me not too much earlier saying wait till you see who's on the bridge and so as soon as that happened that was pretty cool i love that but i do think that the message in this episode is what i like best what i think is so great about what star trek continues does is this episode was filmed in november of last year i think and it it's taken a while for of course for all the post-production to get done Stuff that we're seeing in today's world now and in the last couple of months wasn't happening when they filmed it, yet it seems to be perfect timing. I mean, really perfect timing. And it just is such a powerful message, and it makes me wish that 
certain people and certain groups of people would just watch this episode and listen to what they are saying, and it would just solve so many problems. I I can't say that any more perfectly than you just did. Um, I'm, I'm going to move on to one of my favorite things about the episode. And I have to say it's the performance turned in by Elizabeth Maxwell. I mean, it's easy to focus on Delancey and how how incredible he is every time he opens his mouth. But she's fantastic. And let me give you a couple of examples. The scene where she's describing her condition and how she was going to be a doctor is mm-hmm. just really solemn. And you realize that you know, there's all this hope that this woman has, and now all of a sudden it's, it's gone because she has this affliction. And then also the scene where she first beams aboard the Enterprise and the transition from black and white to color as it creeps in. Her reaction to that is fantastic. Yes, it is. And plus, the, the effect of the color creeping in is even better. I was just going to say that. That was beautiful how they did that. It really was. I mean, you get the sense that, that not only is she freaked out, but you, you get why because of the way it, it transitions in. And then the way that, that Kirk you know, plays well in that scene by helping her calm down, is, uh, I thought was really effective. And then I think she's really great when she shows up at Kirk's quarters, um, there's an awkwardness there. And I thought it played really well. Um, it's supposed to be a little funny, but it, there was, there was an innocence to it and it, was it wasn't funny. over the top. It was funny. Very a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, Vic's got a great line of that scene. How have you been enjoying color? <laughs> <laughs> like that question gets asked every day, you yeah. know? Um, yeah, it's really tough to be the captain in that scene, huh? <laughs> you know? You know, playing on that scene for just a second, and, and I want to get back to what, what else you like, but what I thought was interesting in that scene, and also when they first are on the planet, is, of course, we, we don't like to think of Kirk as the womanizer, because he really wasn't. But right. his reaction when she walks by, and then him turning on the charm in his quarters is just so Kirk. It was just great to see. I... <laughs> I I thought it was it was done really really well, you know it could have been over the top it could have been oh there goes Kirk again but I didn't get that sense because it just it wasn't that cheesy. You get mm-hmm. why Kirk could have an affection for her because there is this sure. innocence from Sakara even though she's incredibly intelligent. You know I mean the woman wants to be a doctor, but you know if she discovers this facet of her world that she's never known. You know, she gets to see it with fresh eyes, and I think there's something really, really neat about that. Right. I um, going back to the couple of things I, I love. There is a scene right after you know the weapons platform is destroyed, where Kirk goes to his quarters and he's standing in the doorway, and it is I think one of the best composed shots of the episode, and the lighting is just spectacular because you see the light behind Kirk and there's just enough light where you can see his face. Yes. And I thought it was, it was powerful. It was effective. And then the look on Sakara's face when the other half of that, th- that shot comes into the scene was just, it was outstanding. Kudos to Matt Busey and, and the entire team. I, they really, really killed it with that scene. I agree. I don't want to say ominous is the right word, but it did give kind of a foreboding appearance to Kirk. As if, like, here's a good analogy. You're a young kid, and you're jumping on the bed, and you're supposed to be asleep, and the parent shows up and opens the door, and the hall light is shining in. You know you're in trouble. That's what I thought of. Yeah. 
I get that absolutely. It um it 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 absolutely is my favorite shot. You know, just just thinking you know cinematography. It mm-hmm. I love love that shot. I went back and I rewound it a couple of times just to see it play through again, and um, I just I really geeked out on it. So what can I say? Nice. Um, you know what we have here is a really great treatise on immigration. We've kind of danced around the topic by saying it brings up current events, but I mean, we've, we've called out the spoiler warning, so let's just talk about it. And I, I have to say that it's, it's a topic I have kind of a strange relationship with because I essentially was a Canadian anchor baby for a good part of my childhood. You know, my mom came here from Canada. She didn't realize at the time that she'd come here illegally because back then, you know, hey, I married an American. I can come across the border. That's what she and my dad thought. Come to find out 10 years later, yeah, no, you you really can't. You never really could. So, you know, there was a process where one of my sisters was almost deported and my mom had to give up her Canadian citizenship and become naturalized. And the reason why they didn't just send my mom home is because, well, she had two American children, one of which was me. So, you know, I... It's it's a it's a topic that uh, I always feel a a very close tie to, and you know it's there's always you know multiple sides of this debate, and you know it's it's the kind of thing where nobody will ever truly agree on it. Right. But it was a script that spoke to me just on that level because I understand the abetions. You know what I mean? Sure. I think that in addition to immigration, I think this episode. Um, tackled racism in quite a way also. Absolutely. I mean, Delancey's face when he realizes that Theus is an Abitian is is heartbreaking and infuriating at the same time. Just because you see her, she has different colored hair and different colored skin, all of a sudden your entire life that you spent together is disgusting to you. That was That was such a powerful scene. And his reaction, how he's clawing her hand away from his is so is so sad because it's just based on what you think somebody's like because of their appearance or because what you've been told by other people well and and let's give ann lockhart all the credit in the world there because her sadness in that scene is just so horrible Mm -hmm. i mean she it is visceral i mean you feel it you know in in the pit of your stomach because you know, here she is. She, you know, she she loves she loves him. She loves this world. You know, she's the representative of this world of the Federation. So clearly, she's vested. And then the color gets turned on. Hey, what do you think of color? Um, <laughs> she's the co- she, she's so petrified. Gets, you, can, you can tell. Yeah. Why would you even stop to say these things? No matter what happens, I love you. And then because she knows in a few seconds her quote-unquote secret is going to come out. It's, it's, yeah. it's heart-wrenching. You know, I have to say, earlier on in the episode, um, there's a great... Uh, it is the scene of the episode, in my opinion. There are so many amazing scenes in this episode, but for me, for my money, the best one is when Delancey comes around the table and says, Captain, what is Starfleet's general order number mm. one? Because you know at that point it is on. <laughs> He goes, to, Delancey and Mignogna go toe-to-toe, and it is so it good. Is. It really is. It really is, is great. I, um, I, it, that scene alone, because John brings a, a gravitas 
to everything he does. And in this role in particular, it is so, so light years different from Q, thankfully, you know, that, that he just, he gets to kill it. And that scene with the two of them is so great, especially when he says, who do you think you are? And like, oh man, he just totally unleashed the word foo on Kirk. Delant. Delancey is so freaking good. He, he's great. And the one that I liked was, of course, Kirk's always got a speech in an episode. He's always got something important to say, and he delivers it. And he's going on and on about what ships are for, and that's not what ships are for, and this, that, and the other thing. And then when he's done, he's got his speech, and he's probably thinking, all right, I got him right where I want him. And Delancey's just there with his arms crossed. Now will you launch the probe? It's just like such a slap in the face to Kirk. And you could tell how frustrated Kirk was by that reaction. And the line, the line just before that, you know, there comes a moment in the life of every world when it's people must choose whom they wish to become. This mm. is your moment. It's such a great, great piece of dialogue. And then, like you said, Delancey follows it up with, so are you done, essentially? <laughs> <laughs> can, can, I, can I have my color now? Um, so as you mentioned we have the captain himself coming up and um, after we talk to him we're going to talk about maybe our favorite three things and um, and pass some judgment on this episode how's that sound dan that sounds good to me man let's do it all right here comes vic mignana Our guest this week holds the distinction of having appeared on Trek Geeks more than anyone else. You last heard his mellifluous tones in our epic 100th episode, A Journey to Futures Past Part 1, Beaming Aboard Star Trek Continues. Today, however, he joins us to discuss the ninth episode of his acclaimed series, an installment titled What Ships Are For. He is the creator and the executive producer of Star Trek Continues, the director of this particular episode, and of course... He plays Captain James T. Kirk. In addition to all of that, he is also an incredible supporter of this here podcast, and he has become a truly dear friend to both Dan and myself. He is Vic Mignogna, and we welcome our friend back to Trek Geeks for his record sixth appearance on your independent Star Trek podcast. Oh my God, is that that really possible? It is. Welcome back, brother. It's so great to have you. Oh my gosh, you guys. It's so great to join you. You guys, you two are some of my favorite people, and Thanks so much for having me back. It's, oh, well, uh, thanks, man. It's great to have you back. I keep telling Bill, we keep having you on, and probably unbeknownst to you, it's probably like a tryout so that you can replace me because he keeps trying to kick me off. <laughs> I doubt it. I, <laughs> I, well, you never know, Vic. Uh, that chair is always open. I'm just saying. Well, maybe there can be three Trek geeks. I'm there down you with that. After Star Trek continues is over, maybe there can be three. <laughs> we'll take you up on it. So, so Vic, what ships are for is truly another brilliant episode in the greatest tradition of Star Trek. Congratulations to you and the whole team. Uh, what were your initial thoughts when Kipley brought you this story? Well, you see, it's not Kipley's story. It's my okay. story. Oh, my bad. Yeah. Oh. I mean, Kipley wrote the screenplay. Oh, the sc- oh that's Okay. Based on the story, and you're going to love this story. Are you ready? Yeah. 
I was sitting in the United Club at Chicago O'Hare Airport, and I was talking with James Kerwin maybe a year ago, maybe less. And uh, we were talking about when we first discovered Star Trek. And I mentioned to James Kerwin that I first discovered Star Trek on a 19-inch black and white television. And James replied, well, actually, that was a lot of people's first experience with Star Trek on a black and white television. And I said, wouldn't it be cool to come up with a story-motivated reason for why our episode would be in black and white? It is, it is so brilliant. So, so James and I sat there and talked about it, and we came up with the idea of a planet that had some kind of radioactive shielding that didn't allow a color spectrum through, and the people on the planet only saw in black and white. And we thought, well, what's a topical issue right now? And, of course, immigration and the borders – and we thought, wouldn't it be cool if they were very isolationist and they didn't want anyone from any other worlds on their planet and there were actually people from another world, a large percentage, that had been on their planet for many years and they never knew it because they can only see in black and white. So James and I came up with the story and then James called me one day and said, hey, Kipley would love to write the screenplay, would love to take a shot at the screenplay if you're okay with that. And I said, absolutely, I would be, I, that'd be fine. And so she wrote the screenplay and she did an amazing job on the screenplay. She brought a bunch of wonderful elements to the story. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so that's how the, the script came about, how the episode came about. You know, the dialogue in this episode uh, is just really beautiful and there are so many powerful lines that just really make you sit back and think do you have a favorite piece of dialogue from the script actually i do and it was actually a line that i added on set um we were talking about making sure there was a balance on both sides of this issue and we were shooting the scene in Kirk's quarters with Kirk and Sakara. And Kirk was taught we were rehearsing the scene and we were and and you know there were the lines where you know Kirk's like you know he comes to basically it's the scene where he comes back to his quarters and says why did your people just try to shoot down two unarmed transports? Right. Mhm. Mm and she says, well, they're Abishans and blah, blah, blah. And Kirk says, are they criminals or refugees? I mean, they're just trying to, you know, trying to come play some place where they're safe and free. You know, I mean, uh, you know, whatever. And then she tells him that her parents were killed by Abishans. And, and he says, according to the script, the people that killed your parents were barbarians. But that doesn't mean they all are. So throughout the episode, Kirk was kind of espousing, uh, you know, the standpoint of, you know, oh, you should, you know, should be more open, right? Right. With your, with your, your allowing people in. And I took James Kerwin aside while we were shooting 
the scene or actually rehearsing to shoot the scene. We were in the set. Matt Busey was making his final lighting adjustments. And I took James aside and I said, I want to say something. I want Kirk to say something about how it's, it's really easy to criticize other people's policies until you lose somebody those policies might have saved. It's real easy, you know what I mean? It's real mm-hmm. easy to take a very high and mighty philosophical intellectual position on something until it hits your family. You know what I mean? It's real easy to have a position until until it happens to you or someone you until something tragic happens to someone you love. Absolutely. And then suddenly you it's not quite as academic as you thought it was. Right. And so I literally took James aside and I said, I want to say something like it's all too easy to criticize other people's positions until you lose somebody that might have been saved by that other person's position, by their policies. And so he and I talked it through and I got it down to what I wanted, it, you know, to how I wanted to say it. And then we shot the scene. And she says, my parents were killed by Abishans. And Kirk says, I guess it's all too easy to criticize the policies of another until you lose someone those policies might have saved. That was, that was a line that was added at the last minute, and I, and I, I really liked that line a lot. And you can you can see the uh, in, in your representation of Kirk in that scene, when she says that, it kind of hits Kirk unexpectedly but comes back with the line that that really that really does well for the scene yeah i mean you know many great lines in this episode i mean kipley wrote some very and i mean the the scene between delancey and kirk oh my gosh the banter back and forth between them (laughs) and the the positions about you know we can hardly feed our own people and we've got problems of our own i mean those are legitimate you know those are legitimate points and, you know, and Kirk says, I'm not suggesting you open your borders to just anyone, right. especially those who pose a legitimate threat. Um, he makes, you know, there are a lot of really good points made throughout the episode. One of the things that is so great about this episode, as with any good Star Trek story, you know, what Ships of Four tackles this issue in present days in ways that work just perfectly you you touched on that just a minute ago um you actually posted on social media recently your thoughts on how this episode ties into today's immigration issues and as usual you 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 know you really hit the nail on the head vic but um can you elaborate on that a little bit for listeners who may not have seen your post on on your stance on on the episode well we were getting some we were getting some feedback from different people uh and People that have a more liberal position felt that the episode was too conservative. And fans of ours that have a more conservative position felt that the episode was too liberal. (laughs) Now, I don't know about you guys, but to me, that tells me we did something right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, to ride the line so perfectly that different people can see it different ways, to me, was some of the best Star Trek. It, It challenged the viewer to think. And to use their mind and to, you know, really consider what they believe about things. Um, but 
we were having some arguing. There were some people in our, some fans in our, on our uh, official page that were arguing a bit. And I, I really wanted to step in and say, hey, guys, um, if you really espouse the, the beliefs and the philosophies of Star Trek, you must allow that other people can differ, you know, have a different opinion than you. And they're still valuable and they're still, you know, er- worthy of respect. Um, and, you know, I, I, I really felt strongly about just posting something to say, look, we did our best to represent both sides of a very complex issue. And um, I felt like we did a good job. And and I just wanted to encourage people to, you know, to not be judgmental, to not give in to to those, um, you know, those, to the inclination to, to, to insult others or to talk negatively toward others in the group that may not have the same position. Um, So, but I mean, any controversial subject is going to do that. Absolutely. I mean, I love how you were able, I mean, everything's not black and white is a great phrase. I love how back in the 60s, I thought that the TOS did a great job in a black or white issue with Lokai and Beale with one side black and one side white. You guys took it to another level. I loved that episode. I loved mm-hmm. it. it. was like, if it's foolish to to consider people superior or inferior based on whether they're black or white, it's even more preposterous to consider them superior or inferior if they're half black and half white, but they're black on the one side instead of the <laughs> other. I mean, to me, it was such an amazing uh, story. Uh, and, and, you know, when people have been comparing this episode to that one, I, I must sure. say I'm extremely humbled and, and grateful. That was actually the first thought I had, too. And um, I, I'm not surprised. I've seen that reaction from other folks. So I really think that, you know, it's, I, I mentioned earlier it was in the finest spirit of Star Trek. I, I truly believe that, Vic. You guys killed it with this episode. It was great. Um, so in this episode... We finally got to see the planet set that was promised. And oh my gosh, no. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to point out that has always been the case with Star Trek Continues. You've delivered exactly what you told your donors they would get. It Thank looked you. marvelous. And what was really amazing to Dan and me is that we've been to stage nine. And we know what that particular area used to look like. And the team did an amazing job. We were totally blown away. Okay, now I have to tell you what's very, very special about this. Yes. When Kipley wrote the screenplay for Episode Nine, there was no planet set. There were no oh. scenes on the planet. Wow. Only scenes were in the council chamber. And I, this was right at the time when we had decided that we were going to only be able to do 11 episodes. And the planet set that we originally built appears in episode 10, which no one has seen yet. (laughs) But we shot 10 and 11 back in November of last year, okay? And we shot it on this barren desert, Vasquez rocks-looking kind of planet. 
That's what we built. But when we realized that we weren't going to be able to do any more than 11 episodes and we could only do one more standalone, episode nine, after we got the script from Kipley, I called James Kerwin and I said, we have got to figure out another way to use the planet set. We can't. We put so much work into that planet set. We have to get more than one episode use out of it. And so James said, well, what are you thinking? And I said, I thought about it for a minute and I said, okay, this society is a very isolationist society, right? They don't want people coming in from other worlds. They're very protective of their borders and their walls. What if they're so protective that you can't even beam down right into the city? They actually have a transport platform outside the city walls where you have to beam down. And then they send an emissary out to meet you and escort you back into the village, into the city walls. So we agreed that was what we were going to do. And we literally wrote that whole scene where they beam down and, and, uh, and Galisti and Theus come out to meet them. And then the scene, the second uh, planet exterior scene with Sulu and the flower, mm-hmm. uh, that was supposed to take place um, in and around the council chamber. And we moved that out, out to the planet exterior as well. So we actually got two planet episodes out of, out of our planet setting before we nice. had to say goodbye to it. And when you guys see episode 10... You're going to be like, oh, my God, how is that the same planet? (laughs) Oh, man. Let me tell you something really cool, too. You may not have realized this. When we did the planet set for episode 10, it's a barren, rocky desert planet, okay? Mm Mm-hmm. And because our planet our setting was not as big as the original series we relied on uh, a modern technology called green screen and we literally surrounded our entire set with green screen wow so so that we could extend it into the you know off into the horizon put mountains in the distance sky in the distance make it seem much larger than it is right so that worked perfectly for episode 10. Mm-hmm. Now, let's, let's talk about episode 9. <laughs> Even though we present in black and white, we shoot in color, right? Right. Sure. Did you notice what uniform Kirk was wearing? The wrap. Yeah, his green, his green the one. Yeah. green wrap. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> you can't use a green screen when Kirk is wearing a green wrap. Oh, yep. Now, but he... Somebody you're in, in your audience might say, well, then blue screen. Well, what color are Spock and McCoy's uniforms? <laughs> blue. <laughs> so we were faced with a very big dilemma. We wanted it to look like a much more forested, you know what I mean, foliage-heavy planet. Yeah. Not at all like what you're going to see in 10. Wow. We had leaves all over the ground and twigs and trees everywhere and 
a, you know, a beautiful wooded planet. So we racked our brains. In fact, do you know that at one point I was going to have Ginger make me a, a wrap out of some other color that would, when it was turned to black and white, it would look like the same value as oh, wow. the green wrap. And then whenever we were in the council chamber, of course, you know, we would change to green, to the sure. green wrap. But I didn't want her to make a new uniform. And she, she, was, she was already designing and making all of those original uh, costumes for all of the Hylini, right? Awesome. Wow. She, yeah, they were. And she had her hands full with that. So I'm sitting there looking. I'm down there at the studio thinking, what are we going to do? There's got to be a solution to this. And that was when I thought of it. If you were putting on a stage play at your school and you wanted it to look like a, a cityscape or a forest, what would you do? Uh, paint it? <laughs> I'm terrible what? at this. Uh, like a, a, a backdrop or canvas? A backdrop. Bill gets an A. A backdrop. Nice. So I got on the internet and I found websites that rent every conceivable oh. backdrop wow. to, to theaters all over the country. And I f went through dozens of wooded backdrops and I found a company, ironically, in Florida that, that rented – these backdrops, they're 70 feet wide wow. and 40 and forty feet high, and we literally oh, wow. folded it in half. And they, they shipped it overnight to us, and we literally hung it over the green screen wall, and it looked perfect. And, there's yes, no, and there is no post-production, no green screen compositing after the fact. It photographed in camera. Perfectly. Unreal. Huh. Wow. So, yeah. I mean, it, it works so beautifully. And so, then the planet for episode 10 was just sand and dirt on the floor, on the ground. And we didn't want it to look like that. We wanted it to be, you know, leaves and twigs and, you know, foliage. So we went outside and we literally yanked up probably a dozen <laughs> trees, a dozen trees. Trees of varying um, heights, and we brought them in, and we built bases for them. And then we went to Walmart, and we bought these bed sets that had camouflage print on them. <laughs> and they literally looked like fall leaves and twigs. And we brought them back, and we spread them, probably six or seven bed sets, and we spread them all over the the floor the ground right and pretty much they looked great except for one big problem if you got if you got at any kind of a distance from them you could see the pattern oh sure so guess what we did we went outside and we filled big garbage uh cans full of leaves <laughs> and twigs and then we brought them in and threw them scattered them all over the sheets and it broke up the pattern and it looks absolutely perfect that that is a fantastic story although this wow. this makes me wonder 
about shooting, or at least the black and white scenes. Does that change the way you have to light and then shoot the episode compared to you know the oh, standard yeah. color? Well, you know, you know, well, you know, when Matt Busey was shooting this, he has a monitor, right? He has a video monitor plugged mm-hmm. into his camera, and he had color turned off. So um, even though we were shooting color, he was looking at it in black and white. So he was lighting it, you know, based on what he, you know, based on the monitor that he was looking at, which was yep. showing him black and white. And I tell you what was really cool was when I got all the footage home, I was cutting the footage and it looked so cool in color. In fact, you know what I want to do? After the episode is out, I think I may release some oh. scenes like like the planet scene, only release it in color. Yeah. Oh, nice. Just for fun <laughs> because it looks so beautiful and it's a shame, almost a shame. Uh, you know, that we had to strip the color out of it. Now, here's another fun thing about the planet that most people don't know, but you guys do. The room that we built our planet set in is a big, empty room. It mm-hmm. sounds like a gymnasium. Yes. Yes. We, we can't afford to put soundproofing everywhere. Right. And if you were to hear it, you'd be like, oh, my God. This, it sounds horrible. In fact, it didn't matter how good it looked because it sounded horrible. It looked amazing until we opened our mouths. And then as soon as anybody spoke, it completely blew the illusion. So you know what we had to do? I had John Delancey come over to my house and record every line of his dialogue on the planet. And then I recorded every line of mine. And then Todd came over to my house and recorded every line of his. Then Ann Lockhart came over and recorded every line of hers. Then Grant Imahara came over and recorded his lines for the planet scene. Then I sent the planet scenes to Chuck Huber in Dallas, and he recorded his lines. And and then you get these nice, clean, adr lines of dialogue back, and you lay in the planet ambience and the music, and it's magic. Wow. You know, it's really, it's funny that you say that because we watched the bloopers the other day, which as always are just awesome. And I could hear the echo in John's voice when one of the blooper scenes, and I'm like, how did they clean that up? That's cool. Yeah, there is no cleaning that up. It was all (laughs) ADR. Wow. Word on the planet was ADR. So, Vic, I got a very quick question before my next main question, and it relates to what we've just been talking about. We are from, Bill and I are familiar with stage nine. Where was the council scenes built? Where are those on the stage? On the, the, down chamber, there? the council chamber was built in that open area adjacent to engineering. Oh, okay. okay. So right outside the wardrobe door yep. is that open area, and that's where we built the council chamber. Now, I'll tell you a little secret about the council chamber, too. I wanted it to be bigger than we had the space for it to be. Mm-hmm. So when we were shooting it, and, you know, I directed this episode, and when we were shooting it, I thought to myself, how can we make it seem bigger? So what we did was, whenever we were shooting toward Delancey and the council chamber, we moved their desks away from the back wall behind them and moved it all out away from the wall. Mm -hmm. And then when we switched around, 
and we were shooting back toward the archway entrance and Kirk, Spock, and McCoy back that way, we moved Kirk and Spock and McCoy and the carpet in the middle of the room further out away from that arched entrance. Oh, wow. So when you cut back and when you cut back and forth, it looks like the room is bigger than it really is. Wow. And then little tiny things when you're editing, like when Spock, when Spock nerve pinches the guy with the gun. Yeah. And and then they pick him up and carry him out. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, there's one shot facing one direction where the guards pick him up and, and carry him off camera and then Spock follows him out, and then it, it flips. The next shot is looking back toward Kirk, and the guys are carrying him out the archway. Well, if you just build in an extra second of time before they enter the shot with the dragging the guy out, then you create the illusion sure. that it took them more – they had to cover more space, you know, more ground than, than was really there. And then the final touch – is when you're mixing the episode and you tell Ralph Miller to put reverb in the entire council chamber scene so it makes the room sound bigger and more, you know, spacious <laughs> and Wow. That's that's ingenious. See, that's why we don't work in this field and you guys do. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, um, you know, those kind of little things, that's that kind of stuff is is my kind of movie magic that I love. I love oh, great. creating those kind of moments. And then you see them finished on screen, and nobody would ever imagine what right. went in. You know what I mean? Yeah. It really is something. Um, you know, Vic, for the, through the first eight episodes, we've seen some truly legendary guests in from television and movies. And you guys certainly didn't disappoint. Uh, this episode with the likes of Elizabeth Maxwell and and the wonderful Ann Lockhart, as well as Mark Ralston, who I just love in Shawshank Redemption. Oh, right. Uh, right. He's he's awesome. But, you know, I have to say, man, reeling in a legend in Star Trek such as John Delancey was amazing. Um, he is just so powerful in every single scene. Can you tell us um, how you were able to land John and and what it was like to actually work with him on this and what his thoughts were about uh, the team that you have down in Georgia? I absolutely will tell you. Um, John and I have become good friends over the years doing conventions together. Um, we have the same manager that books us into conventions, and uh, and I've been to his house before, and uh, and have become friends with John. And as I was putting together, as I was putting together this story, I was thinking about who have I met at conventions that would be amazing in this in this role, and. One person that came to mind was Bruce, Bruce Boxleitner. And then suddenly I thought of John Delancey and I thought, oh, my God, John would be so perfect. And then I thought, ah, he'll never do it. <laughs> and then I thought, well, nothing ventured, nothing gained, though, right? Right. Sure. So I called him one day and I said, John, you, you remember my Star Trek series I told you about? Well, we've got a story that you would be so amazing. You'd be so amazing at. And he said, well, send it to me. Let me read it. And so I sent it to him and he called me back and he said, this is really a wonderful script. Wow. And, uh, 
literally that it was that simple. And so wow. he uh, he agreed to come down and he came down and he was so sick when he came down oh. and he, he was so he had the flu or something. And he was he felt horrible, but he pushed through and had a great time. And I mean, the moment he left, he wrote me an email that I read to our cast at lunch the next day to our cast and crew at lunch where he basically wrote us and said, I was so completely blown away by the quality and the kindness and the efficiency and the professionalism of your team. So I've worked on some major television shows um, and your team was just as wonderful as, and, and professional as anybody I've ever worked with, maybe more so. Amen. So he had a wonderful experience. Um, we actually went to his house. A bunch of us that live in L.A., we went to his house, and he had pizza, and we all watched episode nine about a week before it premiered. Oh, wow. He invited everybody awesome. over to his house to watch the episode. Wow. And guess who was making pizza when we got there? Delancey's got a... He's got a, a wood, a brick oven outside his house, and guess who is making pizza? No idea. Uh, Bob, oh, boy. Bob Picardo. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Picardo was there making making pizza for everybody. There were probably 15 or 20 of our cast and crew there, and it was just a wonderful time. And, and John was very, you know, very pleased with how it came out and, yeah, what a pl- what a privilege to have him. You know, oh, absolutely, oh, without a doubt. And he was he was compelling in every scene he was in. Um, it, there's yeah. also there's also a wonderful scene, Vic, between Kirk and McKenna in the briefing room, where she's helping Kirk to realize how much he cares for Sakara. Now, the scene has a bit of a light ending to it to break some of the tension in the rest of the episode, which is great. But there is so much substance to that scene. Personally, I think it does a really great job of showing just how integral Dr. McKenna has become, not only to Kirk, but to the entire Enterprise crew. Do, do you think that's a fair assessment at this phase of absolutely. that character's arc? Absolutely. And that's all by design, you guys. Um, I mean, we, we had determined a few episodes back that we were going to need to Establish the character and and um, justify the character's existence, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so you know we were looking for opportunities and ways to do that. I think the um, the relationship that uh, she has with Spock that we've seen in previous episodes is, is quite an interesting one, uh, as well. There's that, those subtle hints of how close they become that Spock would never say out loud. And, and it's just a testament to what, uh, Michelle and Todd both do. It's really great. Yeah. And I, and I, I don't want to give anything away, but wait till you see the, the remaining episodes. Ugh. I mean, oh, I hate wait, that. <laughs> wait till you see the remaining episodes. There, there, there are. There's a method behind everything we've done. A reason for everything. Nice. Well, speaking of things that you've done, 
you guys have done a great job through the entire course of the series and making subtle changes and things to get us ready for the jump from seasons uh, or years four and five up to the motion picture and just little things like Kirk's eyesight having some problems a few episodes ago and the tractor beam changes that we saw to be more like TNG in episode eight. And even here in episode nine, I personally thought that Kirk's hair looked a little different than what we're used to seeing and more towards what we see in the motion picture. Uh, But I got to tell you, man, for me, the best one that we have seen so far, and it's going to be hard to top, is Kirk proclaiming that he's never going to be caught dead yeah. in one of those Admiral uniforms, man. Dude, I, um, that was a moment that I told our people, like our co-producers, that was a moment that I told our co-producers, I want to find, we have to, we have to build a moment in where Kirk is talking to somebody back at Starfleet Command and they're wearing a motion picture era uniform. <laughs> and as soon as the as soon as the transmission is over, McCoy looks at Kirk and goes, What the devil was he wearing? <laughs> and Kirk says, I don't know, but you'll never get me in one of those things. And a complete throwaway. Oh. And and again, all of this by design for a really, really big payoff. Nice. Very nice. So with nine episodes now released, the remaining installments left are your penultimate episode and the series finale. As Star Trek continues, begins to draw to a close for the viewing public, I mean, the fact is it drew to a close some time ago for you and your STC family as far as getting together to produce this amazing content. To borrow a line from Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock... How do you feel? I feel old. <laughs> that was that was awesome. <laughs> Very nice. Worn out. Um, no, actually, I will be honest with you, and I will tell you that um, I I have very mixed feelings. I'm still working on it. Right. So for me, Star Trek continues is not over. Right. I'm I'm still uh, working on music for episode ten, and uh, and the mix, the sound mix for ten, and I'm still working on uh, assimilating and um, inserting the uh, special effect shots for eleven, and then uh, very very soon we'll be doing the recording session for the orchestra for original music for eleven. Wow! I've got. I've got, um, you know, I'm I'm still working every day on Star Trek Continues. So for me, it's not over yet. Sure. But I will tell you that, you know, for a lot of other people, it's over. And I'm I'm really torn because I have very mixed feelings about it. Because on the one hand, I am so immensely proud of what we've done. Um, when I, when we shot Pilgrim of Eternity, I never would have imagined that, that we would ever do 11 episodes and that they would all be, you know, so good. And we would involve so many great people. Um, so I am, I am so honored and humbled and proud of our team and what we've accomplished. I mean, nobody will ever do anything like this again. Mm hmm. At the same time, it was hard work. It took a massive amount of my time. And it was hard. It was really hard. 
it was stressful trying to, you know, make, you know, $80,000 look like a million dollars and trying to get things built for nothing and trying to get people to do stuff for nothing and beg, going and stealing, whatever, you know what I mean? Just trying to accomplish something great with very limited resources. Mm -hmm. And it was really, really hard. But I'm very, very proud to say that we've done it. I mean, 10 and 11 are in the can. They are edited. They are extraordinary. And I am just chomping at the bit to finish them and, uh, and release them to the world. We, we did what we set out to do. Um, whatever else happens, whether it be with the sets or... Uh, props, uniforms, uh, any fur- any other uh, subsequent series or productions, take all of that out of the equation. And we did what we set out to do. Right. Well, I have one more question for you, and I have one more comment. I'm going to give you the question first, and then I have a, a an editorial I'd like to I'd like to give to you, Vic. You you've given us a little bit, and and we do this every time you're on. You've been on six times, so you got to be used to this question. What what little thing can you throw at us in regards to episode ten to look forward to? Well, I will tell you this: there's a guy whose name you will see in our credits named John Vinzen. John is a professional Hollywood feature film editor. This is a guy who's edited films like, oh my God, Fight Club and... uh, Oh, wow. And uh, the new Lego movie. And, I mean, he's done a lot of big stuff. He knows editing. And he contacted me during our first episode and said, I love what you guys have done and I'd like to offer my services. And so what has happened every single episode of our series, I have taken my cut, my edit, after I edit the episode, I take it to John's house and he and I watch it and he gives me any notes he has on how to make it better. And... He's had fewer and fewer notes over the years. <laughs> I mean, his notes are things like, I think you should add five frames to that shot. And I don't really think you need this shot. Or um, can we stay on this shot longer? Or, you know, I mean, very, very subtle, very sure. small notes. And I took, I went to his house about two weeks ago and showed him episode 11. And he was in tears. Wow. And he's and when we finished he said, "I can't believe I'm saying this, but you saved the best for last." Oh. <laughs> oh man. He said he said this is so monumentally heartbreaking and satisfying at the same time. He said the way you have tied everything up and resolved everything so perfectly and leading right into the motion picture. He said, it's so satisfying on so many levels. And yet at the same time, you know, the story and what you're seeing happen 
in the story is, you know, in many ways heartbreaking. Wow. Well, we can't wait for both 10 and 11, but I'm going to take a second, Vic, and I'm going to, I'm going to get kind of up on my soapbox, which I don't normally do. Um, you know, there are, there are different levels of class that we, we see in our life. And I got to say the amount of class that you and your team showed everybody last month, I think it was when you announced that you were going to be pushing off the premieres of 10 and 11 so that people could enjoy and concentrate on the new Star Trek Discovery series coming out in September is just a perfect example of why Bill and I love you guys so much. You did exactly the right thing, and it just shows how much appreciation you have for the product. And I, for one, want to personally thank you for doing that. It is just something that was just amazing. Thank you for saying that, man. Thank you. You know, we have always endeavored to publicly and their ownership of Star Trek and Discovery. We we have done our very, very best to, to lend our endorsement and our enthusiasm to everything that's going on right now. And, uh, you know, I'm, like I said earlier, the most important thing to me is that we're actually going to be able to release our episodes. The -hmm. most important thing to me is we're actually finishing, able to finish what we began. Right. And, and whether or not it's, whether it's September and October or October and November, um, it doesn't matter much as much to me. And what matters more is that CBS knows that, that we support them and we've done our best to do that in posts and blogs and announcements on our on our social media and i just felt like the best way we could do that at this point was to get out of the way and let everybody you know you know let let everybody just focus on discovery and what's going on with that awesome well folks he we said earlier at the top of this segment he is our dear friend and vic we do truly love you like a brother, uh, please give our love to Michelle and to your mom and to the, the whole Star Trek Continues family. We miss you guys, and uh, we truly cannot wait to see what you have left to show us. Thank you, my friends. We love you to death, and we're so grateful for your support and your enthusiasm, and let's do this again when 10 comes out, okay? You got it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> All righty. Thanks, guys. It is always, always a true treat and pleasure to have Vic Mignogna aboard this podcast. He is welcome anytime. And and Dan, I, I called him our dear friend, and that's not just words. That's not just lip service. He truly is. He really is. Um, he is. He is such a gentleman. He is such a friend. He truly cares about what he's doing, and he cares about the people that he works with, the people that he talks to like us, and we can't be more thankful for having the opportunity to have gotten to know him and the entire team over the course of the last few years. He always, always has something to tell us that we never would have imagined or thought of. 
he tells us stuff and you can tell when he's talking that he's smiling when he's telling us. And he's just a class act, as is the entire Star Trek Continues team. Absolutely. So, Dan, um, I've got a bit of a challenge for you. We haven't talked about this, so I'm going to spring it on you right now. Um, I'd like for you to pick three things you love about this episode that you haven't talked about yet. That I haven't talked about yet. Well, I will say that um, seeing the planet weirdly shaped... And you could see the dips and canyons and stuff with the funny green atmosphere I thought was interesting. It's color above, but it's not color when you go through the atmosphere. I thought that was interesting, and I liked that. Um, let's see, number two. Oh, boy. See, if I haven't already talked about that's going to be interesting. Um, um, Sulu talking about his plant, Gertrude. <laughs> another great callback even though that was four years ago because it was in season one that we actually saw the famous hand plant but uh, i thought that was kind of cool and um i think that we did talk about it with vic but we haven't talked about it you and i i thought that the scene in the briefing room was extremely important and very serious but mckenna's reaction and the way that michelle delivered the i'm good was Classic Michelle. Anybody who knows Michelle, it was it was a perfect Michelle moment, more so than McKenna moment. I loved it. <laughs> I I agree with you entirely. Um, if I have to pick three things, um, they're going to be a little random. Um, I, I, I some of them are, are dialogue. Um, uh, two of them are, and and one of them is the line: "Could you really go back to a world without color?" And because you see the cost of this whole affair on Kirk and how he, he truly empathizes with Sakara and, and how his affection for her is real. I really think that's a, that's a really great moment. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other one is Anne Lockhart's line that says, my love for you will never, ever change. Right. And it's so emotional because you can see that she knows something that he doesn't know. Yes. And it, it makes your heart break a little. You know, it's a, I mentioned earlier that her sadness was just so horrible. And you know that this is a moment that that she had to know was coming at some point. Mm -hmm. You never know when at some point, you know, the lie gets exposed. But, um, I thought that it was, it was just really such a, a wonderful moment for that character too. So just amazing performances by both Elizabeth Maxwell and, and Lockhart. And then honestly, I have to say that the lighter moments of this episode really, really work well for me. Um, many times when Star Trek tries humor, it doesn't always work well. But I thought that these lighter moments were really nice breaks in the tension of this episode because there is a lot of tension here. Yes. And I thought it was incredibly effective from the kicker scene at the beginning to the scene or to, like you mentioned, Michelle's line and the, at the end of the briefing room to some of the other really small things. I just, I think that from front to back, the script just hits on every single level. So that's kind of Can I throw one extra one in there for me? The text message that the transporter window was open. <laughs> that was just beautiful. I thought that was a riot. It makes me wonder if there are any emojis in there. <laughs> no? I'm no not, emojis? Probably not. <laughs> okay. Well, Dan, I, I think our, our quote-unquote final judgment on this episode is pretty evident. Um, I think we, we both love it uh, a, a pretty great deal. Um at one point I asked you, you know, in a previous episode, you know, where did 
the episode said in the pantheon of Star Trek continues. And I guess I'll kind of pose that to you again. If you know you had to choose phaser to your head, where in the stack ranking would this one fit toward the top and middle? Has it surpassed any of the other episodes that were your favorite before? What do you think? I love it very a lot. I will say that. And, um, I think it is in the, okay, there's been nine now, so you can kind of chunk it up into thirds. This is definitely a top third, and it could even be top two. Um, it's, wow. It's so hard, and, and I say that because of the message and because of the fact that it is the definition of what a Star Trek story is based on what we remember the original series tackling at the time that those episodes came out. This is a perfect example of getting it done the same way 50 plus years later. So I think personally, it could be one of the top two episodes. It is so hard to rank Star Trek Continues episodes because they are so amazing. But if I had that phaser to my head, I've got to say it's in the top three. Definitely, probably the top one or top two. It's, it's very close. I am right there with you. You know, I think of my favorites as the Lonnie and White mm-hmm. Iris as one and two, and those vary on different days. But, you know, if, if I think about it today as of right now as when we record this, this is definitely top three for me. And, and today I think it's number one, simply just because I, I think, like you said, it is perfect Star right. Trek for the yeah. most part. You sure, I mean? Absolutely. I, uh, th- you know, it's, it's funny because there were times when people give us grief and, and talk about how we're fanboys and stuff. And, you know, do, do, we'll never say anything bad about Star Trek continues or whatever. It's like, well, you know, when you turn out exceptional content, you get exceptional results and you make Trek fans happy and they keep turning out great episode after great episode after great episode. So, um, it, it's, it's easy to love, Great Star Trek. I think you're absolutely right. Fair I mean, enough, you can Dan? sit there and promise. Oh, you just hit. The, you just said it. They're turning out. They're putting out content. Not everybody can say that. You can sit there and promise anything and promise the world to everybody, and then not deliver. These people deliver, and they deliver damn good episodes. So, yeah, you want to call me a fanboy? You can call me a fanboy because I am a fan of theirs, definitely, without a doubt. Um, Dan, that kind of wraps up our look at at what ships are for. Uh, We can't thank Vic enough for coming on to talk about the episode and deep dive with us on some topics. It uh, is always a treat. And um, if you, again, it's, I'm going to go back and watch this several more times because that episode is just that good. I love it so much. Dan, we also love the guys of five-year mission. They who provide each and every note of music you hear on Trek geeks. And um, without them, we wouldn't be nearly as good as we are. That's for damn sure. Um, they are working, Dan, on year four right now. Were you aware? I had heard some rumors, and uh, I'm very excited. I mean, we've got the three-year albums, one, two, and three. We got Spock's brain. You could always use a little Spock. A little RC Spock never hurts anybody, right? Right. I, doesn't hurt me. And, of course, trouble with tribbles, all kinds of stuff. Plus... You also get great moments in Star Trek history if you're watching specific episodes, just like the one I was watching just the other day, Bill. You know, Which one was that? Those crafty Romulans, man. I got to tell you, you know, pretending to be an ally of Ambassador Spock in a cunning attempt to get five-year mission to play on Vulcan, you know, it was all a lie, though. 
They just wanted to invade and bring their new form of music to their distant Vulcan cousins. It was a little insulting, I thought. And, you know, it was all perpetrated by the evil, conniving, lying Senator Farkdeck. I can't believe he was that mean to Ambassador Spock. Uh, see, there were so many ways you could have gone with this. You could have called it Unifarkation. You know, I almost thought you were going to do a play on this episode that we're talking about. What ships are Fark? Um, <laughs> wow. So, three Farks tonight. That's and, good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, Senator Fark deck. Is that what you said? Sure. Sure. Uh, uh, I said it. Uh, of Unifarkation. Yeah, uh, yes. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I think that that's kind of a double uh, entendre. I was going to try to work Fark in there, but I couldn't do it fast enough, so it's, never mind. It's not a double entendre at all, actually. I know that. Um, <laughs> do I at least notch an assist this week? Oh, you get definitely. You get you get a big assist on that. You want to save the game there, man. Uh, what can I, we're a team. What can I say? You know, yes. uh, it's, we go out there and we put it all out in the field and we just, you know, hope to. They were a great team today. Um, they played a great game. They, it was a big Good challenge. Good game. But um, <laughs> we're just happy to come out with a win. And it's on to uh, it's on to Buffalo. <laughs> nice, Thank I like you. that. Thank Not you. too many people will like that, but I like that. <laughs> so Dan, we want everyone to head on to FiveYearMission.net. Please download all their albums, show them some love. Please become a big fan of theirs. If you like the music here on Trek Geeks, we guarantee you'll love every single one of their albums. Dan and I listen to them all the time, and we hope that you do too. Dan, we also have to thank Aaron Harvey, our great friend from Trek FM. He designed the Trek Geeks logo that adorns just about everything in the. Trek Geeks shop at shop.trekgeeks.com. But more, you know, more importantly, it's, it's the identity of this podcast, and it is such a, a beautiful Delta symbol. Uh, you, know, you can check out Aaron's podcast over on Trek FM. He's got two of them. He's got Saturday Morning Trek, which is about Trek in the 1970s. And also, Aaron is one of the co-hosts on The Edge, the Star Trek Discovery podcast that uh, Trek FM has recently rolled out. So we thank him, as always, and um, go check out his stuff, we, please. He's Geek Filter on Twitter also. So go do it right now. Go. Dan, next week. Next week. Looks like uh, we have a returning fan favorite. It's always fun, isn't it, man? Yeah. You know, STLV may be over, but the celebration of TNG 30 is still in full swing. And we're very excited that uh, next week we're going to bring back something that everybody loves, you and I and all the listeners. It's See It or Skip It. TNG Season 5 with our special guest moderator, Dan Kreger. And yes, Amy, we will have some skippets, I promise you. <laughs> yes, we will. <laughs> Dan Kreger is a great friend of mine. He, um, he actually uh, is a podcaster himself who got me into podcasting. In a way, he's kind of the godfather of this podcast, whether he realizes it or not. And uh, it'll be a great time. It, uh, and we're going to go international on this one because Dan's in Australia. I'll tell you what, it's going to be good to have him on a show. That's all I got to say. That, what the hell was that? That was kind of a godfather-ish thing, but not really good. <laughs> you don't but say. I'll take it. <laughs> yep, you wow. Really? So Wrap it up. Yeah. <laughs> okay, for more great Star Trek discussion, we want everyone to head on over to the Tricorder Transmissions online at thetricordertransmissions.com. They have so many podcasts out there. We guarantee they're going to have something for just about every Star Trek fan there is, uh, whether it's you know the Gold Key comics or Shore Leave or uh, Trek Ranks from our good friend Jim Morehouse or 
you know, any of the great discussions they have over there, we know you're going to love it. So that's the tricordertransmissions.com. And of course, Dan, for all the news on all the Star Treks, please visit our great friends at treknews.net online at treknews.net. For now, this has been episode 112 of the Trek Geeks podcast. We do hope you all live long and prosper. From now on, I'm going to drink all the drinks with all the coconuts right here at coconuts.com. Make it so. Whoa, do that again. I don't know if I can. Bing bong. Come on. That was very nice. You should be proud of yourself. I heard the bing bong the other night when I was uh, on uh, Trek FM's The Edge because they use Zoom to record. Yeah. Excellent. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Are you blind? No, I wasn't moronic like some people. Okay, so get this. So about two blocks down from my work is the eye doctor that I now go to. I just started going to this place last week, and they're great. Yeah. So I'm going to try contact lenses again. So they called me this afternoon and said, hey, your contacts are in. If you want to come pick them up, they're just a trial set. I said, sure, I'll be right down. So I go take a walk. It's gorgeous out, and of course, the eclipse is going on. And I get to the office, and I'm inside talking, and the receptionists are like, you got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. There's a group of people right outside the eye doctor office looking up into the sun with just their sunglasses on. <laughs> you want to hear what's even better? One yeah. of the guys was like, oh, that's not safe. So he put another pair of sunglasses on and did it with two sunglasses. <laughs> oh, oh, they're, God. oh, man. It just I weep for the future. It. Yeah, eye doctors are going to be in business for quite a long time. (laughs) I just, you know, we only had about 60% coverage where I am today, and uh, the sky didn't even really look noticeably darker. No. Uh, People were gathering outside going, where's the eclipse? I'm like, do people not pay attention? It's not going to be total here. (laughs) Yeah, a little little nutty. uh, One girl tried to tell me that um, the, the eclipse was total in Boston. Okay. She saw pictures of it and everything. Great. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, honey. it was it was interesting. The pictures that uh, um, Haley sent were were awesome. It was really cool seeing how the the street looked normal, and then later the sky was blue, but everything on the ground was dark. Almost kind of like a twilight type deal. Very very strange, but very cool at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Well, in seven years, we get closer to one. Yeah, yeah. And if I could get you in a rocket, you'd be a lot closer. Wow. That that took a turn. I said it. What a jerk. Uh, I'll tell you what, Buffett was fun. (laughs) Uh, I don't don't think I realized that you were a huge parrot head. I'm not a huge parrot head at all. So why do you go and tailgate at Buffett? 
because it's something that my brother and brother-in-law and cousin from New York have done, and they wanted me to do it with them. And the tailgate is awesome. We got great drinks. We have awesome gourmet food that we prepare, uh, and it's just a great time before the show. I mean, he's not the best entertainer in the world, um, but the Shut your tailgate- mouth. <laughs> Robbie might not like that too much, uh, but um, know, right? it's a lot of fun to be there for the day and and just hang out and stuff. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it was it was uh, I had fun. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> I I let go a little bit with all the crap you. going on with work. I decided yeah. to have some fun. Well, it's, I think you needed it. Yeah, I did. I I actually played nine holes for the second Sunday in a row, mm-hmm. and um, I did slightly better. Did you? I did. I did slightly worse in some areas, but I did slightly better. <laughs> I lost Excellent. less balls. Well, there you go. That's not a bad thing. Well, that's an. No, that's an improvement, right? Sure. Why not? Congratulations, Apparently my brother-in-law. Oh, thank you. Apparently, my brother-in-law works at a at a golf course. Uh, who knew? He's the. Uh, he's one of the starters. Oh, and you didn't know this? Well, no, he he didn't tell me. You know, he's kind of in semi-retirement now, and. Didn't tell me he was working at a course in, you know, here uh, not too far away. And uh, I'm like, so wait, 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 you're working at a golf course? He goes, I, I didn't tell you? No. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> so I got to golf for free on Sunday. That didn't, that didn't suck at all. That's not a bad thing at all. No. But, if I'd had even another, you, a full 18 of me, I would have done the whole course. You played for free and still sucked. Wow. Really? Normally, there's a little incentive to do better when you, you know. Whatever. Okay. Although I'll tell you this, I normally cannot hit very well with my pitching wedge. The last two Sundays, I have been lights out on my pitching wedge, man. You did. Uh, you did say that last week. You you hit your pitching wedge very well, so that's good. I was very surprised. Not lots of nice loft. I was dropping it on the green. You know, from you know wherever I I was hitting it from when I decided to use it. I was really kind of surprised. I developed a nice comfort zone. So watch it'll all get blown to hell next Sunday. Either that or, you know, <laughs> when golf becomes just a game of pitching wedges, then you, sir, will be the Masters champion. I am convinced that humans that are really great at golf are actually aliens from another planet that we need to round up and lock up. <laughs> wow. Okay. That, that's my theory. Sort of like Other than that, Black. I have no strong feelings. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Exactly like Men in like Black. that. Because, because uh, almost everybody in the world sucks at golf. <laughs> I mean, they may have, they may be good in various degrees, but you know the the Tiger Woods of the, of the world are, are few and far between. And let's face it, he was probably high. So, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, people who can just you know, hit, you know zero handicap people, they are aliens. That's what I'm here to tell you. Okay. Well, my brother shot an 87 the other uh, when he was in Aruba last week, which is pretty good. And my cousin shot an 84 last weekend, which is pretty good. So. I guess what you're saying is there's a possibility that they could have alien DNA in them. I shot an 84 on nine holes. Yeah, there you go. And on, on just nine? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Was just it nine. like three? Hey. <laughs> Actually, you know, truth be told, I, I've been golfing now for, what, on and off for six or seven years. I still don't keep score. You don't have to. Do you like doing it? I. That's it. I like it. It brings me joy. You know, some people get frustrated by golf. I think it's a remarkably zen sport because at some point when you're standing in the tee box, it's you and the club and the ball and nature 
and silence. Whoa. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay, let's substitute podcast with everything that you just said. Because when it's done on the podcast, it's just you and your microphone and your headset and Bill's voice. Nope, doesn't work. Sorry. Never mind. Wow. I try to explain to you why I like golf, even though I'm not great at it. And you have to be a grade A jerk. <laughs> no, I just was trying to brighten your day and make you smile. No, you're, you're a jerk. <laughs> wow. Okay. Challenge accepted. Shut up and let's talk about some spoilers. Okay. Because I choke on my water. There you go. Pardon nice job. It takes a lot of practice to be able to do that. It's kind of like golf. Shut up. Are you ready? <laughs> I am ready, sir. <laughs> I never liked you. <laughs> yeah, you love me. I always loved you. <laughs> All right, here we go. You got it.